Well, good evening, Longview. Glad to be with you. I see uh, you all had the same cold weather that we had in Dallas. Well, it has been a week, has it not? My gracious. Thank the Lord we're at least over that part of it, though I was thinking today about just how many of our churches throughout our state of Texas, particularly those that may be uh, more out in rural areas, smaller churches, some of them are facing and dealing tomorrow with uh, broken pipes or other damage to the building, water damage to the building and other things, and it will be tough. It will be tough for many of these churches to overcome all of that, but with the Lord's help, they will overcome because these are the Lord's churches, but we need to be praying for our sister churches, don't we? And uh, so I know that you will do that. We will do that not only in the state of Texas, as hard as we have been hit, but other states as well have faced so many difficulties. It is a joy and a pleasure to be with you today. It's good to be able to see Jason Millsaps again. I knew when he walked into the office a moment ago, that guy looks familiar. Well, 20 years ago, uh, he was occasionally helping out in the music ministry, filling in uh, where I was a pastor in Dallas uh, during those days. That's probably been 20 years ago. And so he looks familiar. He uh, looks like he's probably uh, a little more handsome now than he was in those days. And I'm, I don't remember, I don't think, were you married then? Yeah, you were already, y'all were already married at that point. Wow, my goodness. So it's great to be with you, wonderful. And uh, then I want to thank your pastor for the invitation he has afforded me to be with you tonight. I'm grateful for the opportunity. So uh, I've had the opportunity to really just get to know him for a few minutes earlier before our service began. And I really like him. I really do. I'm grateful for you, brother, for inviting me to come. The joy of being with you, getting to know you better. I look forward to more fellowship with you. I certainly do. And so I'm grateful for your pastor and for his kindness in inviting me to come and be here during our service together. Now, I want to invite you to join me in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah, the sixth chapter. Isaiah chapter six, if you'll find your place there. And as you're finding your place there, during this time of revival meetings, the question is, will this series of meetings beginning tonight and concluding Tuesday or Wednesday night, whichever night you're concluding, will this series of meetings truly be revival? It remains to be seen. We can have meetings, but that doesn't necessarily mean God will show up. God wants to show up. He's already here, in fact. He wants to bring revival to your life and to my life. Revival is what happens to the lives of Christians. Evangelism is what occurs in the, as we lead lost people to Christ, and they come to faith in Christ, and we pray that during this series of meetings, even beginning tonight, people will come to know the Lord Jesus. But also, revival is not just the salvation of unsaved people, as important as that is, it's also the people of God getting right with God and revived. You can't be revived unless you, unless you have been vived. Unless you have life, you can't get that refreshing life that comes when God shows up and we come back to Him. Duncan Campbell years ago said that the definition of a revival is a people saturated with God. 
What would this church look like if you were a people saturated with God? As a matter of fact, as we begin our series of meetings, I want to ask you to pray a prayer. Not just tonight with me preaching, but tomorrow morning, tomorrow night, through the week, those that are preaching. Come to these services. I want to ask you to pray a prayer. All of you students, I want to ask you to pray a prayer. It is a serious prayer, and it is this. Lord, do anything in me you need to do in order to do everything through me you want to do. Lord, do anything in me you need to do in order to do everything through me you want to do. Let me ask you a question. What do you think God wants to do with your church? Well, I've only been here on your premises now for about an hour, but I already know the answer to that question. And here it is. What does God want to do in this church? A whole lot more than he's ever done before. You see, that's what God wants to do and desires to do in all of his churches. We have wonderful legacies in our churches. That would be true for this church. But we don't live on our legacies. We don't live on the past. We live in the present and we live for the future. What does God want to do in this church? A whole lot more than he's ever done before. And so I'm going to ask you to pray that prayer. Beginning tonight and throughout this week of services, Lord, do anything in me you need to do in order to do everything through me you want to do. In light of that, join me in Isaiah chapter 6 as we read the word of the Lord. Isaiah chapter 6. Beginning in verse 1, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a high and lofty throne, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphim were standing above him. They each had six wings. With two they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. And one called to another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. His glory fills the whole earth. The foundations of the doorway shook at the sound of their voices, and the temple was filled with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and live among a people of unclean lips, and because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, and in his hand was a glowing coal that he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Now that this has touched your lips, your iniquity is removed, and your sin is atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord asking, Who should I send? Who will go for us? I said, Here I am. Send me. And he replied, go, say to these people, keep listening, but do not understand. Keep looking, but do not perceive. Make the minds of these people dull, 
Deafen their ears and blind their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their minds, turn back and be healed. Then I said, until when, Lord? And he replied, until cities lie in ruins without inhabitants. Houses are without people. The land is ruined and desolate. And the Lord drives the people far away, leaving great emptiness in the land. Though a tenth will remain in the land, it will be burned again like the terebinth or the oak that leaves a stump when felled. The holy seed is the stump. How big... Is your God? How well do you know Him? How much are you like Him? How ready are you to serve Him? In the 8th century BC, over in Israel, a young preacher and all of his people. We're on the edge of a nervous breakdown because their great king, Uzziah, was dead. In the year that King Uzziah died, in the year that King Uzziah died, in the southern kingdom of Judah, Uzziah reigned longer than any king, 52 years. It would be the equivalent in our culture of having one man serve as President of the United States from Lyndon B. Johnson to Donald J. Trump. Only one leader, everyone 52 years of age and younger, would have known only one man, only one king, only one leader, Isaiah. They had learned to trust him. And Isaiah begins in the year that King Isaiah died. More than a date on the calendar is that reference. We know that King Uzziah died in 740 B.C. But it's not just to tell us that that's the date or the year that this occurred. No, it's more than a date on a calendar or a chronological notation or a trivial detail. No, it is a description of the circumstances politically and socially and economically and culturally in the land of Judah during this time. During Uzziah's reign, it was a time of prosperity. Uzziah had brought the southern kingdom to her greatest heights in terms of prosperity. He had built up the army of Judah to the elite number of 307,000 fighting men. They were at the height of their power militarily under his reign. During Uzziah's reign, he had subjugated all of the enemies of the people of Judah. He had taken care of the Philistines over toward the Mediterranean. He had taken care of the Edomites down in the southern desert. He had taken care of the Ammonites over there in their location. And the land and the people lived during most of his reign in a time of relative security and relative prosperity. He built the port city down on the Gulf of Aqaba. 
He built other cities in order to provide grain for his people. He rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem and strengthened them. And he built aqueducts bringing water into the desert areas. It was a time of prosperity. You might say that during his reign, it was a situation where the Dow Jones average shot up to over 30,000. And like the 1928 Republican political ad, there was a chicken in every pot and there was a garage or there was a car in every backyard. It was a time of prosperity. But also in the year that King Uzziah died, it was a time of uncertainty. Just five years earlier, old Tiglath-Pileser III had become king of Assyria. He was evil and his people were evil. And he began to turn his attention toward the northern kingdom. And in fact, as he began to rattle his saber, threatening to come and attack, it would only be 18 short years that his armies with their feet on the ground and boots on the northern kingdom land would come in and destroy the capital city of Samaria and kill thousands, take many more into captivity. And because of the idolatry of the northern kingdom of Israel, God used Assyria to judge his own people and the northern kingdom ceased to exist and was no more. It was a time of uncertainty. It was also a time of superficiality. Oh, the people would come on the Sabbath day to the temple to worship. Just like our churches get full, at least as much as we can during this COVID era, people are coming to church. But it was an era of superficiality under King Isaiah's reign because he made one big mistake. He did not destroy the high places and the idols on those high places in his land. And so people would come on the Sabbath to worship. And then during the week, off they would skulk to the high places to worship idols and false gods. And during Isaiah's day, it was a time of spiritual superficiality. The people of Judah had no clear vision of their own sin because they had no clear vision of their God. In the year that King Uzziah died, a tsunami of grief had swept across the southern kingdom. The flag was flying at half-mast. It was a very, very difficult time. And Isaiah, young man, young preacher, was deeply concerned about all of the changes that are coming. Our great king is gone. 52 years of prosperity, and now he is gone. And the next one in line does not have the capability or the ability to lead the people. And I can imagine old Isaiah, can't you? As he goes over to the palace and he peers through the doors to the throne where the king once sat, but the throne is empty. And young Isaiah makes his way to the cemetery and he sees the grave of the great king. And he remembers the great oratory and leadership, but now his heart is left as cold as the stone slab behind which the body of the dead king 
lies. In the year of King Uzziah died. You might say this statement would be the equivalent in our culture to something like this. In the year the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor, I saw the Lord. In the year that John F. Kennedy was assassinated, I saw the Lord. In the year that planes flew into the Twin Towers, flown by terrorists, I saw the Lord. You know, there are only some things you can see in the night of darkness that can't be seen in the day of gladness. There are some things that you have to have light to do. If you want to plow a field, you've got to have light. If you want to paint a picture, you have to have light. If you want to perform an appendectomy, you have to have light. But the astronomers love the darkness. Because only in the darkness do the stars reveal their glory and their treasures. And there are some things that can only be seen in the darkness that can never be seen in the light. Whom do you see tonight? It was 12 months ago, almost to the week, that we first heard about COVID. And have you kept up and noted the things that have occurred just in this country alone in the last 12 months. We have had the scourge of COVID leaving many in our churches and in our homes and in businesses, leaving many dead bodies behind. And still that's not over. And on top of that, we have seen the outbreak of racial stress and, and rioting. And the problems that come and that are developing with all of that. And then a nation divided politically in an onerous election. And the nation split in two, not trusting the others. And then back in September and October, as you may recall, in states like California, in states like up in the Northwest and in the great state of Colorado, the largest fires in the history of those States were burning, destroying property. And then we had a terrible hurricane come ashore. And shall I go on all within the last year? Shall I tell you the story about the last year? And then just within the last seven days, we have seen the cold wind and snow and ice come into our state and has brought devastation to the great state of Texas, much less the other states that have been affected. Whom do you see during the darkness, during the crisis? Some people can only see dictators. Some people can only see terrorists. Some people can only see the drug lords. But in the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah was looking at an empty throne and God gave him a vision of an occupied throne. And the greatest thing that this country needs tonight 
And the greatest thing that the people of this church need and the people in Longview and the people in Dallas-Fort Worth and the people in Texas and the people in the United States and beyond in our world, the greatest need tonight is for people to have a fresh vision of their God. That's the greatest need. We need to see God. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Isn't it interesting that Isaiah was looking at the wrong person and looking in the wrong place, just like so many of us, so many people, even Christians who ought to know better, looking toward the wrong people, looking in the wrong places, when their eyes need to be on the king, the king. Earthly power comes and goes. Earthly kings live and they die. King James I, King James II, King Charles I, King Charles II, King Louis I, King Louis II, King Louis XIV. Kings live and then they die. But have you noticed? Never in the Bible do you ever read about God the first, and then God becomes decrepit and he ages and he passes off the scene and now we've got God the second and then later God the third no in the Bible what we have is God the first God the last God the only there is only one God who is eternal who exists forever and who is in charge he's got one telescope by which he sees all things his omniscience he has one bridge by which he crosses all things his omnipresence he has one hammer by which he breaks all things, his omnipotence. He is God the first, God the last, God the only. And this is the God you need to see. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. And Isaiah describes him. He said, I saw the Lord seated on a high and lofty throne. Kings sit on thrones, don't they? I've seen some of the great thrones over in the different lands, particularly over in Europe, over in England. Kings and queens sit upon thrones. The King of kings and Lord of lords sits upon a throne in heaven. And you see, the reason he got there, or the reason Isaiah is able to have this vision, is God gave it to him. In Isaiah's distress and his sadness over the death of his king, after he went to the palace and after he went to the cemetery, Isaiah went to church. And he began to walk up the steps to the temple. And suddenly, God intervened and gave Isaiah this great vision. And instead of the walls of the temple, they receded and Isaiah saw the temple in heaven. And instead of the choirs, Jason, singing antiphonally back and forth to each other, the Levitical choirs in the temple, Isaiah heard the singing of the seraphim. And instead of the smoke of the altar of incense in his temple, Isaiah saw the presence of a holy God. The year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on his high and lofty throne. 
and just the hem of his robe. Your King James Version may say the train. We know what that is, don't we? We have seen the beautiful bride as she comes in on her wedding day. She's wearing her beautiful wedding dress. And behind is a long flowing train, a veil, a train. And we've seen kings and queens in their regalia. And when they come in and we all stand in honor of the king. And we see the robe and then that train, that hem of that robe that comes out several feet. That's the train. And Isaiah said, that just the back part of his train, of his robe, filled the temple. Just the back part. Such is the majesty of God. The hem of his robe filled the temple. And then Isaiah says, verse 2, seraphim were standing above him. The word seraph means the burning one. It's an angelic order. And so if you have in the Bible a seraph, but if you have, that's one, but if you have an I am on the end, that's the Hebrew plural. So one seraph, many seraphim. And so here are the seraphim. How many are there? We don't know. But here they are, seraphim were standing above him, and they each had six wings. You know, I got to thinking about that. Six wings, that sound, that's a little redundant, don't you think? Six, it only takes two kind of redundant. They have six wings. And Isaiah says, with two they covered their face, <clears throat> with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. In the Old Testament, the face is the symbol of all wisdom and knowledge. And so seraphim in the presence of the king of kings who has all knowledge, they cover their face, symbolizing humility in the presence of the king. In the Old Testament, feet are the symbol of governmental authority. In the presence of the king of kings and the supreme court of the universe, the seraphim cover their authority, cover their governmental authority in honor and in humility before the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And with two of those wings, they flew back and forth, back and forth, and they are ready at the moment's notice to accomplish the will of the one who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And not only that in verse 3, one called to another. Antiphonally, back and forth, did they call one to another. Kadosh, 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 holy, 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 is the Lord of hosts. The number one thing that you and I need to become reacquainted with, I'm talking to Christians now. I'm not talking about the unsaved person out there. I'm not talking about the drug dealer. I'm not talking about the terrorist. I'm talking about you and me. The greatest need you have and I have tonight is to become reacquainted with the holiness of our God. Because God is holy and we are not. Holy, holy, holy. In the Hebrew Old Testament, if you want to emphasize something, you double it. 
If you really want, really want to emphasize something, then you triple the word. It would be like on your computer, you bold it, you put it in 20-point type instead of 12-point type, you put it in italics, and then you highlight it with red on your computer. That's what's happening here. God is holy, holy, holy. God is love. God is just. God is merciful. God is many things. He has many attributes that are revealed in Scripture. But the one that Isaiah sees and what you and I need to see tonight and from this text we see it as we, come in, as we become in a position of encounter with this God tonight. He is holy, holy, holy. Three times he is holy. The word holy means set apart. The word holy means pristine, pure. The word holy means there is not one scintilla of sin or moral imperfection in God's character. He is absolutely pristine, perfect. He is holy. Holy, holy, holy. And Jason, you'll find this interesting, and all of you musicians will find this interesting. The Hebrew author and the Hebrew people, the scholars Note that there are little markings underneath each of these words, and they are musical markings to identify that with each time the seraphim spoke one of these words, there was a crescendo in volume that was taking place. And so the seraphim that Isaiah heard, he heard them say, Kadosh, 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 holy, holy, holy is the Lord This is what Isaiah heard. The volume was so loud. The bass was so strong that, look at it, verse 4, the foundations of the doorways in the temple shook at the sound of their voices. Some of you complain about the decibel level of music in your church. I had a man when I was pastoring, back when you were there coming in and out helping us with a little music, we had a man in our church who brought a decibel meter every Sunday. And then he would send me an email or letter or whatever and let me know what the decibel level was of the music that day. I'm not kidding you. I wonder how it will be when we get to heaven. And the Tris Hagion, the three times holy, as the angels are calling God and His name and His attribute, and they are holy, 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 and the doorposts of the foundations of the temple are shaking with the volume. I wonder if we'll have our decibel meters on that day. And the temple was filled with smoke. Smoke is a symbol of the presence of God. Do you remember when Solomon dedicated that temple in the Old Testament when it was built? And all the preachers were there, the priests, by analogy, the preachers. And all the Levites were there, by analogy, the associate pastors and the ministers of music. 
And they're all there. But when God shows up at the dedication of His temple, the smoke, His presence, filled the temple and everybody else had to leave. And so Isaiah sees and smells and hears all of this. Twenty-six times in Isaiah, God, in the book of Isaiah, God is called the Holy One of Israel. That experience of Isaiah 6 marked that young preacher for his life. He never could get away from that moment on from the holiness of God. And more than anything else, 26 times in this book, he talks about the Holy One of Israel. Like Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. Dun, 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 dun. It's just over and over and over and over. God's name qualified by the adjective holy. It's the ultimate expression of God's nature. And by the way, in the New Testament, in John chapter 1, Jesus is described as the expression of God's holiness and His glory. And His glory. And that's why He says in verse 3, the whole earth is full of His glory. His holiness and His glory. His glory and His holiness. This is who God is. This is what Isaiah saw. And more than anything, this is what you need to see and who you need to see tonight. Not COVID. Not whoever's in the White House. We better get to the point in our life as a Christian when it really doesn't matter who's in the White House. God is on His throne. And we need to get to that point in our Christian lives. God is the one who is enthroned. And tonight, more than anything, we don't need to see COVID. We don't need to see a political scene divided. We don't need to see everything else that's happening. We don't even need to see all that has transpired in nature in the last seven days and the disruption to our lives and all of that. All of that stuff, as bad as all of that is, if our eyes are on all of those things, our eyes will never be on the God who sits enthroned on an occupied throne. Listen, you look at anything else, and I don't care where you look, it's an empty throne. You want to look at yourself, you want to look at your preacher, you want to look at your church staff, you want to look at your friends, you want to look at your parents, you want to look at your children, your grandchildren, your boss, whatever it is, whoever it is, look at anybody and you're looking at an empty throne. But if you will see, have a fresh vision of your God, then all the rest of that will fade to the side. And you will see God as Isaiah did. Now in verse 5, Isaiah is ready to speak. He's come in contact with God. Isn't that what we want? Isn't it what we want to do? We come together to worship. We want to encounter God. When we come together to sing and then when we preach the word and listen to the word preached, we want to encounter God, right? And so then Isaiah said in verse 5, Wow! Wow, baby! Get the praise band going. We're in the presence of God. Wow! Let's boogie down spiritually. Wow, baby! 
We're in the presence of God. Is that what Isaiah says? No. In fact, he doesn't say wow. He says, woe is me. Now listen carefully, because some of you gripped a little tighter and got a little upset. But I want you to hear me out. Listen carefully. You cannot have the wow without the woe. You cannot have the wow of worship without the woe of repentance. Isaiah was the preacher. One of the best men of his day, a paragon of virtue. And yet when he comes in contact with a holy God, the preacher of the day covers his face, falls on his knees and says, Woe is me. God wants you to have the wow of worship. But you can't have the wow of worship without the woe. And that's why the worship in Judah at this time was superficial. Like so many of our churches today, we come together and we've got the wow and we've got the the singing and then we get the preacher up and he does his thing and it's all wow. And then we go off Monday through Saturday to the high places in America, to our adulterous relationships, to our bitterness, to our disobedience of our parents. And we go off and live contrary to what we say on Sunday. You want the while? God wants to give it to you. But you cannot have the while without the woe. Isaiah says, woe is me. I am, look at the word, ruined. You know what that word means in Hebrew? It's a word that means to come unraveled. I used to love Saturday morning cartoons until they took them off TV, which they did in my adult life, but I'd still watch them if they were there. But do you remember Wiley Coyote? And he thinks he's going to get the Roadrunner, and then, you know, something happens, and kapow, and sometimes things go so bad, you know, the cartoonist and he just what? He just unravels. He just, like a sock coming unravel. He just unravels and he just falls there on the ground. There's nothing left of Wiley Coyote. He just unravels. That's the Hebrew word here. I am ruined. I have become unraveled. I'm a goner. I'm a dead duck. I'm done for. Stick a fork in it. It's over. My life is over. I have seen God face to face. How can any person live when they see God face to face? This was Isaiah's thinking. And that's why he says, woe is me. And by the way, Isaiah was really good about that word woe. Because if you notice back in chapter 5, which is the chapter that precedes chapter 6, you'll notice that when Isaiah the preacher is preaching, look at it, pastor. Notice what Isaiah does, chapter 5, verse 8. Woe to those who add 
house to house. Look at verse 11 of 5. Woe to those who rise early in the morning in pursuit of beer, who linger into the evening inflamed by wine. Look at verse 18. Woe to those who drag iniquity with cords of deceit. Verse 20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Verse 21, woe to those who consider themselves wise, judge themselves clever. Verse 22, woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine, champions at pouring beer. Whoa, 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 whoa. And then in Isaiah 6, when he comes in contact with God, the preacher, instead of woeing everybody else, cries out, woe is me. It's really easy to call out woes on everybody else. Oh, the, that's the drunkard. Oh, that's the, that's the drug lord. Oh, that's the... And the clipboard committee of the church goes around because they're so much better. We're so much better than everybody else. Until you come in contact with a holy God. Woe is me. I am unraveled, I'm undone, I'm a dead duck, I'm a goner, my goose is cooked. You can translate it or paraphrase it any way you want to. Isaiah fully expected his life to be over. Notice what he says, woe is me because I'm a man of unclean lips. Wait a minute, this is the preacher who uses his lips every Sunday to preach the word of God. Yet Isaiah says, I'm a man of unclean lips. And then he says, everybody around me also is the same way. I dwell among a people of unclean lips. And I'm a dead duck and a goner because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Verse 5, and therefore who can stand? Were it not for the mercy of God, were it not for the love of God, and were it not for the grace of God to you and me in Christ, Apart from our salvation, that's where we would be. That's where we would be. Isaiah confesses his need. Oh, but it gets better. Verse 6. One of the seraphim flew to me, and in his hand was a glowing coal that he had taken from off the altar with tongs. Get the picture. A glowing coal, a hot coal. Seraph's got in in the tongs and he's approaching you, Isaiah. Taken from the altar. Which altar? There were two. There was the altar burnt offering in the courtyard of the Old Testament tabernacle and later the temple. Or inside the holy place, there was the altar of incense, and there were coals in both places. Which altar? The text doesn't say. But most likely, it's the altar of burnt offering, because that's where every little Jewish family would come bringing their sacrifice. And the priest would meet them, and they would come, and he would slay that sacrifice, and the blood would be shed. And the body of that animal that's now slain would be placed upon the altar of burnt offering, and the fire would consume it as a sacrifice to God. The blood is shed in place of the sinful family, and there's daddy, and there's mama, and there are the children, and there are the teenagers, and the priest takes them, and together they worship God on the basis of atonement, the shed blood. The angel comes and says, with that coal, he touched my mouth with it, verse 7. 
You would think that if you're going to have your lips touched by a hot coal, you would experience searing pain. And normally that would be true literally. But this is a vision. And immediately when the hot coal touched his lips, he felt release and peace. And this is what the seraph says to him. Now that this has touched your lips, look at it. Your iniquity is removed. Your sin is atoned for. The altar burnt offering took care of the sins of the people of Israel. And here, in significant way, and by typology and looking forward to the future, here is Christ who is the one who takes care of our sin. When we come to Him by faith, based on His shed blood on the cross, His atonement, now when that atonement is applied to our lives, look at what happens, the same thing that happened to Isaiah. Your iniquity is removed, your sin is atoned for. Look at that, iniquity and sin. Your guilt, the ugliness of all of your sin. You say, David, I've got a lot of sin. That's okay, you don't have more than the blood of Christ can heal and cover. You say, I've done a lot of things wrong. But you, don't, you haven't done more than the blood of Christ can cover. Years ago when I was pastoring my first church in Dallas. And one of the men who attended my church with his wife who was a Christian, his daughter who was a Christian. He came every Sunday. He was not a Christian. Former army ranger. Served in Vietnam. Came to my office. And he said, I can never be saved. And I said, why? Why would you say something like that? He said, I've done too much wrong. I have killed too many men. And then he outlined how, as an army ranger, they dropped him behind enemy lines. And then they, his only order was work your way back to the American lines and kill every enemy you can kill. And he told me that he kept a record of everybody he killed, either with a bullet or hand to hand. And he said, I quit counting at 800. And he said, there's too much blood on my hands and I can never be saved. And I did everything I knew to do to explain to him the difference of killing in war versus pulling a gun on a neighbor and blowing their brains out. I did all I could do, but he thought he is, his sin was greater than the blood of Christ. And folks, your sin is not greater than the blood of Christ, greater the blood of Christ than your sin. You can never sin yourself beyond the, to, beyond the love of God. There's nothing you can do to make God love you anymore. If you're here and you're not a Christian tonight, there's nothing you can do to make God love you any more than He loves you right now. And there's nothing you can do to make God love you any less than He loves you right now. Your iniquity's taken away. Your sin is atoned for. Literally in Hebrew, it's the most important word for atonement in the Old Testament. And it reads like this, your sin is covered. God says, I've got you covered. But God, there's a debt I owe. I can't pay it. God says, don't worry about it, son. I've got you covered. You're here today. You don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior. God says, hey, I've got you covered. The blood of my son Jesus covers as an atonement for your sin. And if you will call your sin what God calls it, repent of that sin. And by faith, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. God says, you can be saved. That's true for every one of you students. That's true for every one of you senior adults. That's true for everybody in between. Your sin is atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord asking, Who shall I send and who will go for us? And now Isaiah can respond. Here I am, send me. Literally in Hebrew, it's two words. Five words to translate it in English, but in the Hebrew text, it's just two words. Literally, hear me, send me. It's one word in Hebrew, hear me. Second word, send me. Hear me, send me. 
Because you see, when you come in contact with a holy God, you don't jabber with God. Shut up and listen to God. Quit telling God how He needs to do things. Quit telling God what needs to happen with COVID. Quit telling God who needs to be in the White House. Quit telling God all of these things. Shut up and listen to Him. Hear me, send me. And I know the hour is late, and I know my time is up, but I'm going to take five more minutes if you don't mind. In fact, I'm going to do it even if you do mind. <laughs> you can't hire me and you can't fire me. I grew up preaching in the pine thickets of North Georgia at the age of 16. And I do what I do for God, not for you. But I pray that I'm doing what he told me to do in bringing this message from this text as I believe he clearly made it known to me. This is how I want that church to begin their series of meetings. I want them to encounter me. And so I'm the obedient delivery boy as best I know how. And I ask for five more minutes. And so God answers him. Go and say to this people, you're my new Billy Graham. There'll be millions saved. Revival will come to the land. Is that what it says? To quote John Wayne, not hardly. God says, say to this people, keep listening, but you be stupid and don't understand. That's the Hebrew implication. Keep looking, but you don't see. Make the minds of these people dull. Deafen their ears. Blind their eyes. Otherwise, you know what? They might see and hear, and they might open their eyes and understand, and they might repent, and they might be healed. God is giving a bit of irony. He knows that the people of Israel will not listen to Isaiah, and Isaiah is merely the spokesperson. God's the one who writes the news. Preachers just deliver it. But every now and then, people want to crucify the preacher. Say to this people, keep listening, but, but don't, you're not going to understand. Make their minds dull, deafen their ears, blind their eyes. Because if they would turn from their sin, then I would heal them. But they're not going to turn. I pray that this is not a description of America. I pray this is not a description of the churches in America. And I pray it's not a description of your church. Verse 11, then I said, how long, Lord? Until when, Lord? In other words, Lord, how's all this going to work out? And when is this going to happen? And now the other shoe falls. You think it's been a bad week. You think COVID's bad. Why do you have to deal with a holy God? And God said, until the cities lie in ruins without inhabitants. Until Longview's houses are empty. Your house, your house. Yours, 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 and yours. Until my judgment sweeps across my people 
and the, they lie in ruins because of their idolatry they won't repent and I send a foreign army on their soil and I take them away and that's exactly what happened would happen in 18 years to the northern kingdom and another hundred and a few years is what would happen to these people oh yeah that's the Old Testament that can't happen in America houses without people land is ruined desolate the Lord drives his people far away look who drives his, the people the Lord does not some foreign army though it was a foreign army God used but the Lord is doing it leaving great emptiness in the land though a tenth there'll be a tenth will remain in the land and that was true when the northern kingdom fell a, a small percentage about a tenth God let stay there and when the southern kingdom fell they were carried away into captivity and thousands were killed but about a tenth of them were left there under a foreign ruler and they were there for centuries and they were there under the Roman rule when the king of kings and lord of lords made his way into the world and came to Israel leaving great emptiness in the land. A tenth will remain. But even that tenth, they'll face trial. It'll be burned again. It'll be like a terebinth tree or the oak tree. <clears throat> you say, why does he mention those two trees? Because all of the idols in the high places were made of those two woods. That's the rest of the story. God said, all of your idols that you bow down and worship and you go up there... And you and your girlfriend or you and your boyfriend or you and your neighbor's husband or you and your neighbor's wife and you get under those trees there and you practice the Canaanite idolatry and you have sex as you worship and yet you come to my house on Sunday morning and you think I don't see that and I won't deal with that. That's what God is saying. If you just want to put it down into East Texas vocabulary. That's what God is saying. God said, even that tenth be like that terebinth or that oak. It leaves a stump when it's felled. What happens when you cut down that big tree and all that's left is a stump? You come back a year or two later? What, can, what sometimes do you find there? A little shoot. Another tree is growing, right? And so, the holy seed... That's a reference to Jesus the Messiah. The holy seed is the stump. And in Isaiah chapter 11 verse 1, God says, I have reserved for me the branch. Capital B, it's another name for Jesus. And though my people Israel are not going to ever follow me the way they should, I'm going to bring a Messiah through them who will be the Savior of the world. He will be a righteous branch. From the stump of what's left of Israel because of her sin... Yet I'm still going to fulfill my promise. They didn't keep theirs, but I'm going to fulfill mine. The Messiah is coming. Isaiah had a son, and he was told by God, you named that boy Shear Jashub. I bet, you, I bet you ladies, you mama's not going to have your next child and name them Shear Jashub. I bet money on it. Shear Jashub means a remnant will return. God is faithful. You and I are not. You and I are unfaithful. I look back on my life and I see times when I was faithful to God and I'm thankful for that. And I see times when I royally messed up. 
And I see times where I was displeasing to the Lord. And you do too, if you're honest. And yet in the midst of my failures, as a Christian in the midst of my failures, God is faithful. God says my blood covers all of your sin, past, present, and future. If you confess your sin, He's faithful and just to forgive us, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. First John 1, 9, all on the grounds of the blood of Christ. Because don't ever forget in your life, whatever happens, God says, I've got you covered. There's a mission in verse 8. There's a message, verses 9 through 13. There'll be resistance, there'll be ruin, but lastly, it ends, ends in redemption. 13, the latter part of verse 13, the holy seed is its stump. There will be redemption. Aren't you glad God is a God of redemption? Come to Him tonight. How big is your God? How well do you know Him? How much are you like Him? How ready are you to serve Him? This time of invitation is for every person in this building, every church member, every guest, every student. Did you mean it when you prayed that prayer a moment ago? No, I mean really, just us girls tonight. Did you mean it? Lord, do anything in me you need to do. Break my pride. Do anything in me you need to do in order to do everything through me you want to do. Do you want revival in your church? Most churches don't. I'll just be candid with you. I've been around the block. I've been a Southern Baptist all of my life since nine months before I was born. I pastored two churches for 21 years. I'm in my 14th interim pastor in Dallas, pastorate in Dallas. And I know churches and I know Christians and I know my own heart. And most people don't want to get right with God. Let's just go business as usual. I'm glad he's through. Don't ever invite him back, Pastor. The greatest thing you need and I need is a fresh encounter with our holy God. And so I'm going to pray. And when I finish praying, I'm going to have you stand. And counselors and staff members will be here at the front. For any of you who need and want to speak to someone, have them counsel with you, lead you to Christ, pray with you, whatever. And then we're just going to convert these stairs here and here with the proper social distancing. Keep that distance. We're going to convert this into a prayer altar. And I imagine there'll be some deacons down here. Probably some Sunday school teachers and maybe some students. And some senior adults and some staff members. Because when God, God's word goes out, it doesn't return void. God is speaking to every one of you tonight. Every one of you. Let's do business with God. Our heavenly and our holy Father. Lord, we feel like Isaiah tonight. Our eyes are on empty thrones we're looking in all the wrong places we have trouble on every side it's been a year Lord we don't ever want to have again 
And Father, we need you right now. And Father, for those who are in this service who do not know Christ as their Lord and Savior, I pray for their salvation right now. And I ask, Father, that they would come as your Spirit is convicting them now, that they would come and they would take one of the hands of one of these counselors and say, I need Christ. Pray with me. Help me to come to Christ. Others may need to come joining this church. Father, others may need to come just to kneel. They, they don't necessarily need to talk to a preacher or a counselor or a pastor or a staff member. They just want to kneel and talk to you, oh God. And they just want to recommit to you. They want to confess whatever sin they want to deal with and ask your forgiveness. And Lord, they want to be like Isaiah. They want to hear you say your iniquity is, is cleansed and your sin is covered. Here am I, send me, Lord. That's what they want to hear. That's what you want to hear them say. Father, may they say it tonight. Oh, God, right now, Lord, do we really want revival? Break our pride. Father, help us to do what you call us to do tonight. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Would you stand and would you come? Don't wait on others. You're in the balcony. That's all right. There's a way down. Just come on. Prayer altars here, counselors here, while they play. Right now, it's your time. Would you do it? Right now. Would you come?